Hi, my name's Maddie, and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. And the first reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And the second reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's good to be back here. For those of you who don't know me, um, used to be part of this congregation, Meredith and I, until a group of us went to Trinity Grove, and um, and uh, just to start that up, and it's been a, a really good time uh, down there. This weekend, we've actually had a um, a time where we've reflected for the first six months on what's been happening and all that God has done, and um, it really has been a terrific thing. What God. Uh, is doing there. So I bring greetings from Trinity Grove and also want to thank you uh, tremendously for that'll be good um, for your support um, of the congregation as it goes along. And I'm sure uh, Stephen will give you uh, news updates all the time of um, what is happening. Being a practical person was always part of my personality. <laughs> That's actually why I married Meredith. Who, no, who normally brings these sorts of things and 
I realise I've got things upside down. Hmm. Well, um, it's great also to have the opportunity today to, um, uh, to be in this series following through that you've been doing, that Stephen's uh, been taking you through on navigating the relationships that matter. And uh, one of the important relationships, one of the most important, of course, is um, marriage. And marriage is certainly on the agenda at the moment, isn't it? I mean, uh, you've got a whole question of same-sex marriage and the plebiscite and all that sort of stuff, of which I, I really won't say anything about that today. Um, I want to concentrate on the um, husband and wife uh, relationship as such. But also, you know, you've got um, TV shows like Married at First Sight, one of the most popular. I'll have plenty to say about that a bit later on. Um, but besides all that, I think uh, we could say that in our society today, um, marriage is in a lot of trouble in one way or another in our society. The huge divorce rate, um, the increasing scourge of uh, domestic violence, which we are learning more and more about, are just two of the significant indicators uh, of that trouble. And sadly, friends, uh, both of these are also present um, in Christian marriages, though they're sometimes a little more hidden. So I think it's both timely and important that we look today um, at what the Bible has to say about marriage and how we can navigate uh, that uh, relationship. And um, so I've just uh, called it navigating the relationship uh, of marriage uh, as, uh, as such. And although I want to focus on marriage, of course, uh, I do think that what I say will uh, be relevant to you who are single and I want to specifically say something along the track about um, singleness and marriage as well. My aim is to, from what I understand from what Stephen has been doing, to actually take the same sort of approach uh, as we talk about marriage, to talk about the way God created it, um, how sin and the fall and our fallenness has affected it in our society and how in Christ we get that uh, beginning of the restoration uh, to, uh, to look at marriage in the way it should have been. So first of all then, um, we want to look at the creation of marriage and uh, as you'll see an outline um, of the talk will, as uh, I go along will appear and in your bulletin I think there's a, is there a blank page? Yeah, there's a blank page in which you can either write down the outline or take notes or uh, do whatever you want to do in that regard. Now if we're going to talk about uh, the creation of marriage, of course that first reading we had um, from Genesis 2 is the one most people would choose from the Old Testament. Um, but we really need to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 if we are to get, um, let's say, the Bible's teaching right. If we simply focus on Genesis 2, um, and let me say there are a fair few Christian writers and teachers who do that, we could easily come up with the idea that God has created marriage to overcome the problem of human loneliness and to fulfil the need for companionship. After all, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 began with, it's not good for the man to be alone, God says. But I think this would be to seriously misunderstand the intent of that verse. 
For I want you to notice what God's solution is to that verse. Not God to be man alone. What does he say? I'll make a helper fit for him. What is the help that Adam needs? You know, help is an odd word to use there if the problem is loneliness. I'll make a helper. Comforter, maybe. That'd be better, something like that. But help is odd. And why does... I don't know whether you've asked this question before. Why does the help Adam needs need to be a woman if the problem's loneliness? You can have plenty of good same-sex friendships, can't you? Which you would have heard something about last week, uh, I presume. You see, the problem here is that Genesis 2 is often isolated from Genesis 1. But the two go together, should be understood together as a unit. Um, And Genesis 2 is only understood properly in the context of Genesis 1. So when we put Genesis 1 and 2 together, we might define marriage like this. Marriage is a sexual partnership to serve God's purpose. Now I reckon if I'd have asked you to say, finish the sentence, you wouldn't have come up with that. A sexual partnership to serve God's purpose. You see, the help Adam needs really has nothing to do with overcoming loneliness. The help Adam needs is the help to fulfil the creation mandate that God has given him in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That is, God's purpose to fill the earth and rule over it. If I go back to Genesis 1 verse 27, um, this is what it says. And so that I don't have to look at the screen, I'll print it out for myself here. Um, So it says, so God created mankind in his image. In his image he created them and made them. He created male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature on the ground. Friends, why did God create people as males and females? Why not all males? Why not all females? Well, says Genesis 1.28, so that they could multiply, increase in number, fill the earth, in order they could serve God's purpose to, in the end, rule over the creation for the benefit of humankind. For this person, only a woman, as a helper, would do. Otherwise, that purpose could not be achieved. So, in other words, one of the prime purposes of the creation of marriage was the need for procreation to give birth to children and to form a new generational family unit together, working together for the benefit of humankind. But if Genesis 1 suggests that sex was created for having children, Genesis 2, quite rightly, also suggests that God created sex to be a delightful, intimate human bond. Hence, In Genesis 2, we see marriage, the second purpose, if you like, of this sexual partnership, was God's purpose to delight 
in intimate, faithful love. And so, just to take a couple of verses of that second reading, that first reading that was read to us. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We should understand here this, this um, exclamation from Adam as he sheared the light. But God has made a woman. After all, so far he's only had the animals. And all of a sudden God makes a woman. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We, we should understand it's something like, wowee, this is fantastic. What God has actually done. And so the two become one flesh. And notice verse 25 They were naked and unashamed. They just found sheer delight in sexual intimacy without any embarrassment at all. Sex in the right context in marriage, God created to be a wonderful gift. But outside of it, of course, it becomes destructive of human life and incredibly chaotic. It's exactly the way we find our world, the world we live in today. Now before we, want, we move on to, let's say, how the design for marriage was corrupted by sin and the fall, I just want to make a couple of practical implications from what we've said so far. First of all, I want you to notice that marriage, as God designed it, has a purpose outside of itself. It's actually not something internally focused. It's something that God has put together that has a goal outside of self. It's not primarily there to meet my needs. Very common notion that you'll hear today. But to serve God as it contributes to the care and rule of the earth and the benefit of human society. Second, since procreation seems to be such an important part of God's purpose for marriage... I know that some of you will already probably have the question, what happens if you're childless? What happens if you get married later and don't have children? It's not saying, you know, or infertility, which, of course, um, is a far greater problem in our society if you look at some of the statistics than maybe many of us think um, happens as a result. I don't think that really matters at all. We're not actually saying here that um, uh, children have to be uh, a part of the marriage relationship. It's the normal thing. If you can do that, you should do that. Um, And childlessness is a unique pain for people. Naturally so, because it's the way God made marriage to be, to have children, to rear them, to bring them up. It's right to grieve the loss of the ability to have a child and we see several instances in the scriptures where this is so. And it's right for us to grieve with people who grieve like that also. But the goal is nevertheless the same, friends. Married with children or married without children. Nevertheless, as the couple with children, the goal is to serve God. That's the number one goal always. Married, 
single or anything else. Fruitful service does not depend on having children. We live in a fallen world where painful things happen. But whatever our circumstances, the aim is to serve God. The only difference will be that the form will be slightly different when children are not present. But the goal will still be to serve God God and humankind in whatever way God leads you to do that with the gifts you have. Well, now we move on from the creation of marriage, secondly, to the corruption of marriage at the fall. Genesis 3 outlines um, the problems that the disobedience of Adam and Eve brought about. And part of God's uh, curse that happened as a result of that disobedience affected the marriage relationship and corrupted it as well. In chapter 3, verse 16, regarding the curse on the woman, God says this. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, it's particularly that last sentence that I want to concentrate on. There's been a lot of discussion about what that means. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I think here, we've often thought of desire being good, but here I think desire is negative. This is a curse. And I think we should understand it negatively. And it's really interesting that just, what, 14 verses later, I think, in chapter 4, verse 7, with Cain and Abel, we get exactly the same word in this negative sense. God says to Cain, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I think that's the way Genesis 3 is meant to be understood. The desire is negative, and the rule is also negative. We might say, you will desire to control your husband but he will dominate you. And so enters into the marriage what I call the dynamics of power and control. We know all the jokes, don't we? Who wears the pants in this marriage and things like that. You know, jokes only work because there's an element of truth in what is being said. Well, the illustration so common, repeated once again, if you've ever seen the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you know, where the mother, the husband's the head and the mother says, he might be the head, but I'm the neck who moves the head. The art of manipulation. Most often, friends, the weapon of the wife. I remember as clear as as if it was yesterday, a birthday party. I took one of my children to McDonald's many, many years ago before we ever moved to South Australia. I was the only male at that party, as you might imagine. All the others were mums. But I remember sitting somewhere near them and could sort of overhear what they were talking about while their kids are off 
um, playing around. And they were all talking about their marriages. And it was all about control. How to get their husbands to do what they wanted them to do. On the other hand, the dominance of husbands is well known, isn't it? When the man's had enough, he simply has the ability to put down his wife and dismiss her. Far worse, physically abuse her. You know, one of the opportunities now being sort of pretty much retired is I get to play my favourite game a lot more regularly than I've been able to most of my life, that is to play golf. Um, because uh, they sort of ministry and golf didn't really go together <laughs> a lot of the time in terms of time on the way through. And now I try to play, you know, once a week or something at Tea Tree Gully Golf Club and I can't tell you how many times with the men I've played with I hear them put down their wives in some sort of way or with a derogatory name, often in the guise of a joke. But it greatly saddens me to hear that. You see, Adam before the four has great delight in his wife. Delight. That is the way God made it to be. But sadly, the dynamics of power and control have changed all that. And furthermore, it's also led to a state of marriage today in today's society where I think self-fulfilment becomes the dominant goal. Listen carefully for a moment about um, today about the discussion on marriage and you'll note how popular is the view that the reason to marry is for the fulfilment of my needs in some way or other. Consider the following comments commonly heard. Well, once we were in love, but not anymore. Our lovers died. It happens. I realise I made a mistake. You know, we're not really compatible at all. He just doesn't meet my needs. He's always off doing his own thing with his mates. And so on. It's different words, friends, but the same understanding of marriage. Marriage is ultimately about self-fulfilment. And I'm quite sure that's the reason, one of the main reasons for the high divorce rate in our society. And if there's a TV show that sets this view of marriage in concrete, it's this very popular reality TV show called Married at First Sight. Two people who've never met but are matched up by a few experts, engage in a mock wedding. They can't have a real one because of legal reasons. They engage in a mock wedding, but they still go off on a honeymoon, spend some time living together for a while, and then they have to decide whether they want to go on. Marriage really is reduced to a simple compatibility check of whether they click each one assessing the relationship from their own set of wants and needs. I so despise this show that I do refuse to watch it. But one uh, day, one night last week, I forget when it's on, it must be Tuesday or something like that. Some of you would know, I'm sure. 
but I won't get you to put your hand up. Um, but one night last week, I was watching something on the TV I'd taped. And you know what happens. You finish the tape, turned off, and it sort of defaults back to the TV channel it was on. It was on Channel 9, and guess what it was on? Married at First Sight. And it was the final 10 minutes. And uh, we're at the point in the series, apparently, where couples were deciding whether to go ahead or not. And the two I had on my screen were called Keller and Nicole. Keller was being interviewed, um, and what got me was what he said about love. I don't know anything about the series, of course, but apparently he'd made a few blunders with Nicole, and the question was whether she would give him a second chance. And uh, he was incredibly keen. He said he'd never felt like this with any other woman. And then he said, for the first time he knew what love for a woman really was. I felt like picking up a brick and throwing it at him if I could have. Or, better still, throwing it at the three experts who were there and said nothing about such a useless view of what love is. This is series three. Five couples, one of them was a same-sex couple. Two decided not to go ahead, three decided to go ahead. Guess what? All five have called it quits. All five have called it quits. When it comes to self-fulfilment, when you make self-fulfilment the goal, sex descends into performance whether my partner is able to satisfy me. Great anxiety then develops about performance in bed. It becomes a measure of the relationship and another reason why people sever the relationship. Friends, the pressure to treat marriage like... uh, to treat the goal of marriage in self-fulfilment terms today is absolutely enormous. It comes at us at every angle to treat it like that. And if I can specifically at this point just address those of you who are single here for a moment. Because the emphasis in society too uh, is one that can easily give the impression that if you're not married you've missed out on what it means to be truly human. You're only half a human being. You know, the expression, my better half, in some ways, even gives that impression. Yet, as Christians, how stupid that thinking is, is shown by the fact that we worship the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ who is the most human person of all time and yet never married. The most human person. The most perfect human person. And yet he never married. If you are single, your goal must be the same as a married couple's goal. To serve God. In whatever way he leads you now. And not behave, as I've seen 
um, other singles behave as if you were in some sort of suspended animation until the right person comes along for you to marry. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, friends. It's not easy. The desires for sex, marriage, home and family are perfectly normal because that's the way God created things to be. And it hurts. For most, when such desires cannot be satisfied for whatever reason. I don't want to underestimate that. But nevertheless, our first and overriding goal is to love God with all our heart and mind and strength, to serve God. And you know, I suspect that despite the disappointment of not being married, you'll find life far more fulfilling like that than continuing to pine away from a marriage partner who may never come. A pining, really, that ultimately turns you in upon yourself and to the fulfilment of your needs. Now, thankfully, in Christ, of course, such corruption of God's design for marriage can be overcome, can be worked upon towards a better outcome. And so we move from the corruption of marriage to the restoration of marriage in Christ. And here we move to the New Testament reading that was read for us, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Now, I just want to read a few of those verses, just verses 22 to 25 and the last verse, verse 33. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is a saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives ought to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then at the end, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I believe, you see, that this is the Apostle's direct and countercultural answer to the dynamics of power and control. You see, the temptation, to the temptation of wives to control or seek to control and manipulate their husbands, Paul says, submit. To the temptation of husbands to be harsh, domineering, Paul says, love. In other words, the Apostle is effectively saying that headship and marriage is the recipe for a loving unity in marriage. The trouble is that these two words, headship and submission, are so misunderstood and taken in other ways in our society and even in Christian circles that to many people they seem to justify oppression and call for women to put up with it. God has made the husband the head of the marriage. But what does that mean? It was John Stott in his book, um, Issues Facing Christians Today, when speaking on marriage, who I think captured the best way we should refer to headship. He said, headship means responsibility. Headship means responsibility. Ultimate responsibility for the direction and practice of the marriage. Submission has to do with having respect for the role that God has given the husband, voluntarily yielding to his headship where necessary. 
And that headship is to be exercised for the love of his wife. It's to be self-sacrificial love, the kind Jesus displayed for the church. You see, this is the way Paul summarises the role, the, the, summarises the roles. That's why I put that last verse in, in verse 33. You see, he said, A husband should love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife should respect her husband, that is, respect his headship. Now, what will this look like in practice? Well, if we were peering through a window of such a marriage relationship, what we would see is a husband who demonstrates a deep care for his wife, her welfare, her gifts, her growth in Christ, and most of all, friends, her opinion, a deep care and take into account her opinion. So I want to ask each of you who are husbands here this morning, when was the last time when you and your wife had different opinions about what to do about something, a particular matter, and you agreed to do what she wanted? To sacrifice yourself for her. You see, all too often we end up acting, don't we, as men, just like our culture. Headship becomes an excuse for getting our own way. Wives know it so well. And therefore it just becomes a Christian form, if you like, of the dynamics of power and control. On the other side of things, peering through the same window, we would see a wife who would quite freely discuss all matters of importance with her husband, expressing her opinion quite strongly at times when she thought she was convinced her husband was only thinking of himself or being stupid or something. But in the end, she'd be willing to go in the direction he wanted out of respect for the responsibility God had given him, if that was the case. Now, of course... There are exceptions to this. We're not talking about times when submission involves doing something immoral or involves putting up with abusive behaviour. We're talking about the everyday management of life as married people. Why is this sort of dynamic the solution to the corruption of marriage in a post-war world? Well, because I think it brings a loving unity to the direction of marriage. You see, when self-fulfilment becomes the goal, all you get is division, bitterness, despair, and ultimately divorce results. But God created marriage to be for keeps, and the only way that can happen in a fallen world among fallen and imperfect people like us is through the development of a loving unity where husbands love their wives and wives respect their husbands. And quite frankly, friends, if this dynamic of headship and submission is operating as Paul describes it here, if we were peering through that window, that same window, I think the whole headship and submission thing would be barely noticeable.
Such would be the unity and cooperation between a husband who loves his wife and a wife who respects her husband. Well, the second um, aspect to the restoration of marriage in Christ has to do with sex. What I call a nurture of loving sexual intimacy. Now, I mentioned earlier when looking at the creation of marriage that in Genesis 2, we see that sex is a good gift of God that married couples can delight in. But in a fallen and messed up world, that true delight does not come automatically. We all come to marriage with different sexual histories, attitudes, things that have happened to us, driven by sometimes the sexual chaos that we see all around us in our society. Many, if not most, couples will encounter problems in their sex life at some stage. Don't believe the sometimes absurdly unrealistic portrayals of sexual paradise that we actually see in the media. I remember some time back seeing an interview with uh, the uh, very famous female Hollywood star Julianne Moore. She was interviewed about a movie, I can't remember which one that she'd done, uh, which, you know, it had a steamy sex scene in it. And she was asked about that being a married woman, you know, how did that work, that sort of thing. Um, and I thought her reply was uh, so refreshing. She said that sex in marriage is nothing like what you see on the screen at all. Nothing at all. Screen stuff is totally made up. Now, I'd never heard anybody say that out loud. Never heard anyone say that out loud about Hollywood movies and the stuff we see. But it's absolutely true. Sometimes we're so concerned about the sexual chaos outside of marriage that we forget how important it is to nurture the sexual relationship inside marriage. Now, the Apostle Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. The last passage we'll read um, in verses 1 to 5, or this part of it. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each wife her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to the husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to the wife. Don't deprive each other. You see, some in Corinth were advocating, it seems, abstinence of sex within marriage, thinking either sex was dirty or unspiritual or something like that. Paul disagrees. And particularly in Corinth much like our own fairly sex chaotic society, he sees it as very important to nurture the sexual relationship. But please know how he does it. Note how he does it. He doesn't talk about my needs being met, but the married person's duty to give themselves and their bodies to their married partner. Even more radical, he says that when you get married, if you're single, friends, and you're going to get married... Listen to this. When you get married, 
you actually surrender authority of your own body to your married partner. As far as sex is concerned, your body is for your married partner, not for you. And so in verse 5 he says, don't deprive one another. Or you could put it positively and say, devote yourself bodily to your husband or wife. And really, as life goes on, every married couple knows how easy it is for things to get in the way of this. Workaholics, tiredness, kids, or, sadly, substitute distractions like pornography. Of course, sexual intimacy will look different at different stages of age and life. It is different when you're 20 to when you're 80, (laughs) that sort of thing. Um, It is different as you go along. Things, health, all sorts of factors come in to make... Uh, those things different along the way, but the principle still remains the same at every age. We need to give time and energy to develop the love and intimacy of which we are capable. And devoting time to the nurture of sexual intimacy in your marriage, friends, builds a strong, loving bond between husband and wife. Again, even sexual intimacy has an outward focus because what that does, that bond of love between husband and wife, when it's strong, allows for them to overflow in love to other people and to contribute to God's creation purpose of together filling the earth, ruling it for human benefit. Well, you already know that I've gone a long time, so let me conclude. God designed marriage to be the basic structure of human existence, to serve the good purpose for humanity, to fill the earth and rule over it for the benefit of human life. As with most things, the entrance of sin has corrupted that relationship and even the possibility of marriage for many as well. But whether you're married or not, the prime goal of life must be to serve God in your marriage. Specifically, when it comes to the husband-wife relationship, a loving unity is developed when husbands fulfil the goal of their God-given headship in self-sacrificial love for their wives and wives learn to respect that responsibility given to the husband for the sake of a unified navigation of life and service of Christ. And within the relationship, the development and nurture of sexual intimacy strengthens the relationship for its intended intended purpose of this service of God and other people in the world. And whether single or married, we ought to remember that when it comes to eternity, friends, there won't be marriage any longer. Like Jesus said, I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but that's what he said. There's no more death in heaven, so multiplication is no longer required, if I can put it that way. Rather, going back to Ephesians 5, Paul actually sees the marriage relationship now as a prefigurement of the eternal marriage relationship. That is, the church as the bride of Christ. That's the eternal relationship. 
we all will be together, Christ's bride. I don't know how that will look. I can't even imagine how that will look. But I can tell you, according to Jesus, it will be better than anything we know. Single or married. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, we work together constructively on our marriages. Sometimes it's really tough. And I don't think it can be done. I don't think this, this stuff can be done without the help and power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us to navigate these things. Which is why we ought always to be praying for the strength and health of our marriages. And that's what I intend to do now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of marriage, the gift of relationship between males and females. We thank you that marriage is your creation, that you are the one who gave it and you are the one who helps us to see what was your intention. Lord, we live in a society that is so turned in upon itself, upon its own needs, upon power and control. And we can't help but be affected by that. But we pray that each marriage here and together, as we encourage one another, you may help us to develop that loving unity that comes through good headship and respect. And we pray that you'll help us to work on sexual intimacy within our marriage as well, whatever age, whatever limits we have, so that our marriages may be strong. We may have a strong bond between husband and wife with a purpose in the end of contributing to society and letting that love for one another outpour in love for the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.